Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, composer Carla Lucero discusses the upcoming premiere of her work, The Three Women of Jerusalem, or Las Tres Mujeres de Jerusalén, with stage director Eli Villanueva and consulting vice president of LA Opera Connects, Stacey Brightman. The Three Women of Jerusalem will premiere on Saturday, March 19, 2022, at the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Angels in downtown Los Angeles. This recording was created as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. I'm very delighted and honored to be here to be getting the historical context of Spanish language operas and a Spanish opera in the making. We are going to premiere an opera in our season with the off-grand productions in the cathedral of Los Angeles. And I wanted to actually just share with you some insights, share with you why certain things are going the way they're going, and how we evolved into the way we are presenting this story. And I'm very happy to be sharing this with the composer, who is Carla Lucero. And Carla, I really am very interested about your bio. When I read your bio and and started picturing a path in which your life was going, it was actually very interesting. And so I wanted to ask you some questions about where these twists and turns of your life kind of drove you into the moment that you uh, commissioned to write a one-act opera for the Cathedral Project. You were born in Manhattan Beach, right? Yes, I was. That was just shortly after I was born. (laughs) Just yes. But tell us about your early experiences in Manhattan Beach and Southern California at this time? Well, to put it bluntly, we were the only family of color there at the time I was growing up. I loved the beach, but, you know, my mother had experiences like people coming to the door and asking if the lady of the house was home, you know, when she'd (laughs) open the door. So we were, we were already kind of, I would say outsiders in terms of our, our ethnicity. I'm half um, East Indian and half Latin American. So it's, you know, um, my dad has really, really long heritage in New Mexico. So that's complicated. It's, you know, Spanish and Native American. And we were definitely not like the usual people there uh, living there. But um, the one thing I have to say I enjoyed was the natural beauty, living in Los Angeles. And as I got older, I started to kind of migrate north, you know, towards the city itself of Los Angeles, so, you know, the downtown and Hollywood. And, you know, I realized I was living in a very different type of atmosphere than the city. So I realized that, you know, I need to be living and working in a, more of a melting pot to feel uh, more at home and at ease and to see people like me and my family. Wonderful. And it was around this time that your father introduced you to some music. 
What can you tell me about your age at the age of three? What what was a, a great marker for you at that point? I think I realized at a very early age that a story could be told through music. Um, so that was really ingrained in my head at an early age. I also listened to a lot of um, like Ravi Shankar, uh, Celia Cruz. I, it was like a a really eclectic jukebox at uh, my house. So, yeah, I was introduced to lots of different genres of music at a super early age. That is fantastic. And as you grew up, you were studying music. What was your instrument of choice at that time? Piano. I was being trained to be a concert pianist. But I knew in my mind, I was always composing little songs, little melodies, but as a as a woman, as a girl, I should say, I wasn't given a lot of theoretical training. It was more technical, right, to play this piece perfectly. And there wasn't a lot of digging into what exactly the music was. But, you know, on my own, I was I was finding out about that. So I, I actually entered CalArts as a piano major and changed my major in my second year to composition. The, it was interesting because... I was the only woman in my um, my graduating class as a composition major, um, so it was it was. Uh, I love CalArts. I I don't think I can't imagine going to another school that encouraged uh, me to really branch out. So this was a really it was a pivotal moment for me. Operas always figured in. I knew I was going to write an opera at some point. So this is kind of a circuitous route, very, not even kind of, to get there. But I always kept my my foot in classical music some way or another. Was it the desire to write an opera that got you into San Francisco? Or did you move to San Francisco to get away from the craziness of LA? And in that opportunity in San Francisco, opera was opened up to you? Well, the craziness of my life pretty much led me to just drop everything in LA. I moved to Mexico for a year and uh, for the sole purpose of getting my uh, an opera together to shop. We had a, a subscription to Vanity Fair and there was uh, an issue that had an article. Uh, the title was Hooker with a Heart of Gold. So <laughs> it was about Eileen Warnos. And um, I was just so moved by the story um, in many, many different ways. You know, it's really the story of a very unhealed life. And so I decided this is my opera. This is, it's calling me. I took everything down there, my manuscript paper. You know, I had a, at that time, the, you know, my computer, it wasn't, it didn't have like a music program on it, but I was writing the libretto as well. And I got it together in a year living with my parents in Mexico and then decided the only place I can think of that would uh, produce Warnos because of the subject matter would be San Francisco. So I was right. I rolled the dice, moved there, and uh, within three months, I found a producer for the for the opera. Incredible. And congratulations on your, your first opera. Tell me, after that, I'm sure more opportunities arose. And we're coming up to, well, I'm, I know that there are other compositional projects that have come along the way, but then you come back to opera and you write your first Spanish language opera and it premiered 
at UCLA. Is that is that correct? Yeah, Opera UCLA produced it. It was wonderful, wonderful, and and um, it was the first time I co-wrote. Uh, I brought on a, a co-librettist, Alicia Gaspar de Alba, and the opera is based on her book, uh, Sorwana Second Dream. So I, I, I basically, I read that. Again, these stories just come to me, you know, and and I think, boom, you know, that's that's my next opera. Fantastic. And of course, for us, you are telling us the story of Las Tres Mujeres de Jerusalén. And uh, I was wondering, how did this commission come about? Stacy, are you there? Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to, we need to tell the story together. Um, we were at an Opera America conference in 2019, and I had just received the Discovery um, Award or grant from Opera America. So Stacy saw me, and we didn't meet yet. So it was a crowded I, ballroom. It was a crowded ballroom. And she, her name and her story appeared on a slide above my head as if, as if a vision from above. <laughs> and now we're going to get really base because then we, <laughs> so I had to run to another conference. I think Stacy had to, to leave to go back to LA or to another conference. Something was happening, but we were both in a hurry. And I came out of the stall in the bathroom, and there's Stacy. She said, <laughs> Yes, yes, I, friends, I, I accosted her in a bathroom. <laughs> and that, that song, Meet You in the Ladies' Room, it happened. It happened. So, so, <laughs> so, um, we didn't have any, of course, didn't have cards with us. We we're both in a hurry. So, we took pictures of each other's badges. So I was like, okay, so, you know, Stacy was the VP of LA Opera Connects. And I was like, okay, how am I going to get in touch with this woman? You know, so there was no like direct email. So I just wrote to somebody there and I said, hey, this sounds really weird, but I met Stacy Brightman in the bathroom and at the Opera America conference. And we want, we want to get in touch with each other. I, and I said, she'll remember me if you, tell them and tell her the story and she wrote it right away and we had great laugh. we still have great laughs about it so so yeah so so stacy um had mentioned the cathedral opera operas pretty early on and um um i'll let stacy take it over in a second but one of the the things was that she explained that it's kind of this um it's it's grand opera in the greatest sense because there were so many people involved in it. It's it's a spectacle, as Eli knows. You know this big, big, huge event, and it's and it's um, the stories were usually based on the Old Testament, um, and and she also said that there was some kind of comedic element in it. So I've got some funny stories about that as well. And that it was truly, it's truly for the community. So I was trying to wrap my head around all of this. And Stacy, you may want to jump in here. And, and you know, this is a, a, a program, uh, as Carla said, it's, uh, it's done in the cathedral and it's in its, in its inspiration, it's very medieval. And this notion where we, you know, again, community performers come inside and they have the experience of performing 
this music drama alongside professionals, and it's all done as a gift to Los Angeles. So the performances are free of charge, and and we usually fill the cathedral several times over with you know like it's literally packed, and um, and it's so it's very transformative. It's uh, it's communal and it's deeply spiritual, and again, it blurs the line between audience and congregation and and performer. It blurs the line between something that's ritual and something that's performative and something that's you know happening and true in terms of a deep spiritual connection with it and storytelling. I love when opera is the only way to tell the story. You know that there's something about the story that demands that it be sung. You know, I'd already been circling even before I got the message that hey, stay. Somebody said that she met you in a bathroom and she wants to talk to you. Um, you know, before I even got <laughs> that message, wonderful. You know, I believe in angels and messages come to you in all kinds of different ways. Um, and uh, you know, I think we just had this immediate connection. I mean, it was literally at the moment when we were thinking about what the next opera should be. We had this sense that we wanted to tell a story that somehow could only happen in Los Angeles or, or you know, and, and certainly Spanish. I mean, that's our community. Our community is, you know, L.A. County is, I think, 49 uh, percent Latinx uh, heritage. It made so much sense to have a Spanish language opera for Los Angeles and at the cathedral. And she just sort of appeared. And then, frankly, also, it, it was shortly before Juana was at uh, UCLA. So then we even got to go see this amazing opera and we could sell, you know, this was a woman who could tell a story that was deep, that was profound, that was ancient, but incredibly uh, modern and compelling. And that was what we wanted to do um, with the cathedral, to have it be an ancient story, but somehow completely of today, too. I think I was the one who said I had this sense that something in the Stations of the Cross for um, anybody who's familiar with Catholicism it's the story of the passion of Jesus. It's the story of the, you know what happened on the way to the crucifixion and the crucifixion. And we had the sense that um, somewhere that story could be you know, told anew. And um, Carla, you're the one. You found the idea of the eighth station. You should talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, Stacy presented uh, the idea of creating the, the offer about the passion to me because we had already, we had been talking about stories from the Old Testament and possible, you know, saints to base um, the opera on. And, and when she said this I, and, and comedy, and I thought, oh my God, this is not funny. Strangely <laughs> <at all." laughs> few comics all. sequences. And, yeah. and we yeah. should also say that Benjamin Britten's Noah's Flood yeah. has been sort of the, the, the model. model. Mm-hmm. The model. Mm-hmm. So she had, uh, Stacy had, had told me about, Noah's flood too, and I was diligently studying it to 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 learn learn it and and to understand what makes it work right as a community um, opera. My work is always woman centric, so I thought, okay, Stations of the Cross. Let me look at all of these and see what you know. If I if I find um, something there to incorporate women as as major players in the opera. And when I came to the eighth station, there were the three women of Jerusalem. They had no backstory. Nobody knows what happened to them afterwards. And um, they just pretty much appear. 
Um, and Jesus, you know, counsels them and basically tells them to look within, don't cry for me, you know, um, basically cry for the human condition, you know, so uh, as all this brutality is happening. So um, I thought, well, this is a, a great opportunity to create a woman-centric um, opera um, based on, on the passion, the passion seen through the eyes of these three women. And their, their characters were not differentiated in, uh, in the Stations of the Cross. So I had the, a wonderful opportunity to create um, characters that totally individual characters. It presented some opportunities that I wasn't expecting. You know, and, you know when you're commissioning an opera, uh, Eli, you know this so well. You know, again, sort of our job as the company or the commissioner is to throw something at the artist Maybe throw a you know throw a frame at them, throw an idea, and the great artists come back and will make it bigger than you thought it would be. They'll make it better than you ever thought it could be. And when Carla came back, I mean, I'm I was very familiar with the Stations of the Cross, and I was like, I'd totally forgotten about the eighth one. I had literally, I mean, there, and it says something about women's stories too, right? That it's sort of the overlooked history of the of of the passion story i mean who who are these three women again where do they come from where do they go after this they're they're unnamed i just thought it was brilliant again you know to be able to tell this story from the perspective of these three women who are absolutely part of the story but basically then forgotten you know sort of like again women's history and women's stories being forgotten and overlooked so i i just it was it you it's the moment you dream about as a commissioner where you're gobsmacked, you know, it just, you know, I, I don't want to pulling another, you know, it's the uh, being, you know, struck by, uh, you know, on the road to Damascus, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, the clouds opened up and Carla Lucero presented the story and it, it just really gobsmacks you. And you're like, that. yep, that was it. That was what we were looking for. So we were off to the races then. Thank you. And I love you for that. One of the things that really powered this piece is that this was at the height of the pandemic when I was commissioned to create this piece. I think all of us were in a self-reflective state, you know, really kind of examining our lives and trying to, to figure out how we could be better afterwards or, or you know, better, our, better ourselves, make the world better. So this, just, this piece came at just the right time, just the right time for me. Um, I do have something funny to say about it, though, because the, this part isn't funny, but Stacy and Christopher Kelsch were my dramaturgs for the piece. So no pressure at all. The, you know, the president, CEO and vice president of L.A. Opera are my dramaturgs. Um, so and it was like a because I had nine months to do this, to write the libretto write the music and orchestrate it. So it was like a, like a, like a competition, like one of those cooking shows, you know, it's like, ah, you know, <laughs> trying, to get, trying to get it done as quickly as possible and make the best dish that I can. Um, but, uh, but I was like thinking, okay, comedy. So I was <laughs> at the very beginning, I said, Hey, Stacy, what if I make the women time travelers and maybe ones from another planet arise on a spaceship and she's so sweet. I love Stacy. She says, oh, that's interesting. And then God knows how quickly she got to talk with Christopher about it. 
And she's like, um, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm traveling aliens. So, you know, quickly I realized, okay, this is a completely different piece. So I'm going to um, approach it with, with this, uh, the dignity and the um, focus and, and, and the somber mood that it deserves. We did come back and say simplicity is essential. I mean, it's, it's also having to do with the scale of the cathedral, uh, Eli, you know, and you want to tell a story that people know, except for then they realize, wow, I didn't actually know it. Mm-hmm. You know, that is kind of something, again, that opera does. It, it's a little bit like Mitchell was talking a little bit about like the Don Quixote story or the Oedipus Rex story. You go in going, oh, I know this story. But then to have an artist like Carla then reveal to you, wow, I didn't even realize that that was in the story all along. And uh, and so simplicity is actually really one of the key um, uh, characteristics uh, that uh, we want to hold on to in this storytelling. Yeah. You know, there's, there is one core message and then there are different ways where we, you know, arrive at the same conclusion, I think in the opera. So it takes simplicity because you have to know what the, the goal is. If I could ask at this point, what do you hope the audience will take with them as they leave the sanctuary? What I really hope is that the audience understands that we're all flawed as human beings. And uh, the way that we behave in the world, you know, with even a simple act of kindness could be seismic in somebody else's life. To be uh, empathetic to other people and not be afraid to put that empathy into action. That is really what I, what I hope they take away that, that everybody has this opportunity to, uh, to be more enlightened and become a better person and to ascend uh, to higher ground. That's a, a fantastic goal, especially for me being uh, the stage director for this piece that, that we can actually have them be inspired to find some more enlightenment within their lives. But as we get into that story, we need to then uh, begin to talk about the cathedral project itself. And yes, it is a very large effort to get as many people and their dog into this production as much as possible. So we've had children as, as young as six years old I know that they're supposed to be seven, but we we did sneak in a couple of six-year-olds. And it spans to those who are septuagenarians. I'm not really sure if we had uh, anybody who is an octogenarian. I can't remember if we had, but it it runs the gamut. Um, And the disciplines of people, we have instrumentalists, we have musicians, singers uh, who want to be amongst other singers who want to be next to uh, an opera singer. Uh, We have children who have never been on stage, but they they just think that this would be a, a fun experience. And then we have, you know, engineers or plumbers or doctors or lawyers who uh, need to fulfill uh, that other side of their brain with with something like this. And we throw all of these people together to, to, um, to 
come up with um, a story to tell uh, to a congregation of people, our our audience. And Stacy was talking about uh, how many people do come to our audience. And I, I remember the very first production that we had put was Noah's Flood. And uh, we did not, because the tickets were free, we had anticipated that there would be a lot of people who would grab a ticket and then not show up. But in our first performance, I don't know if you remember this, Stacy, but we oh, oversold. Oh, I have, I have psycho-emotional scars, <laughs> yes. <laughs> to which I, I think even my brother came to the show, but he came late and could not find a seat. He actually had to sit on the side. There's a an area off to the side for a congregation, but he then discovered that that side area is actually upstage of where the real stage is. So he was looking at everything that was off stage and not necessarily seeing everything that was on stage. So it was a delightful surprise to us that so many people would come and we are very happy to uh, bring everybody. The fantastic thing is that uh, everybody is included in this uh, and all the different disciplines that come together, everybody is included. And Stacy has this way of, of finding all sorts of different people in our community to include them in whatever way possible into the family of LA Opera. And I, I do have to state that Stacy is a remarkable person in creating family. Um, and she has created a large family within LA Opera, and we all we all see each other as that that family. And thank you so much for doing that, Stacy. Um, make me cry. <laughs> I love you guys. I do oh and and we love you. Stacey. Love, love, love you. <laughs> we have now a stage where it is actually rather large for us. We have six levels, the ground, and then going up. At first, we had it up to seven feet. And then because this story uh, has the perception of people in the present, people who are observing this tradition of, of the 12 stations, we have... Uh, virtual choirs from choruses all over the world who will be included on this stage. And so we have set up four projection screens around the stage to include the virtual choirs. And we also have a very large projection on the back wall. And so Yes, this is a very large stage. The The main stage proper is over 40 feet wide and 24 feet deep. That is very large. But when you bring it into the cathedral, it is an enormous space. And you will not... It looks like whatever we throw into our stage area, it's a little postage stamp. Uh, 
in in reference to the space itself. And when we actually uh, try to perform this, we we have uh, virtual choirs. And and if you don't mind me sharing this with you, we we have a, a virtual choir that will be projected all over the space. And that is uh, just a taste of what is going to happen with the music and with our virtual choir. You're going to have to get in line for our free tickets uh, so that you could see the rest of it. And I just let you know that there is a uh, an orchestra that is accompanying that, but you have to come to the theater to actually act, add that. And with regards to how our story unfolds, we have the virtual choir, which is, an observation and a perception of of life in the present time, uh, looking at the traditions of the Stations of the Cross being unfolded in a period of time that is a few thousand years ago. The conductor for this orchestra and the person who inspired actually the cathedral project was our own maestro, uh, James Conlon, and he will be at the podium uh, conducting this uh, production. And it's always very exciting to direct a story for him. I was gonna say, if, if Carla thought it was nerve wracking to have me and Christopher Kelsch as her dramaturgs, you know, bless you, Carla, to actually have, you know, a musical uh, conversations and notes and thoughts uh, from, from James Conlon, who is, you know, a, a genius that you, you look it up in the dictionary and there's genius and there's James Conlon. Bless you, man. You, you, you know, we really threw you up there. <laughs> it's, it's an <laughs> honor. Loved this work from the get go. First of all, I am beyond honored to have him conduct this piece. And yeah, when he, I met him for the first time at the workshop, I saw him out of the corner of my eye, taking these notes on the score. I was like, oh no, you know, <laughs> was bracing myself um he he um he's he's wonderful and i think we we kind of hit it off right away because i know his wife his wife worked on wana as a addiction coach he knew of my work before he had seen wana and so he's familiar with my compositional style as i was expecting him to say no this goes this goes this goes but his idea was to begin the opera with the congregation just to get them used to this idea that that they will be participating at at, uh, at key times with the virtual choir. So that was a wonderful thing. Then also an extension of some of the introductions to the, uh, the hymns that are being used. I am nervous. Yes, very, but in a good way. Excited. I would just like to add that the fun thing and the challenge is taking a story like this, which requires a lot of, of thought, uh, a lot of respect uh, for the traditions that have been uh, developed over time with this story, and to share this with um, a whole community of people on the stage. And you will find that the perspectives, I mean, we have an angel, and we've had angels in the past with other productions, but but our angel for this one will be, um, well, probably about 12 to 13 feet tall, uh, which is probably the wow. tallest uh, angel that we've ever had at the cathedral. Um, <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> 
the opera itself will be two performances on March 19th. So circle that day. You want to be there for the world premiere. And, you know, the good news is this is a tradition. This will not be the only time you get to see this opera. Three Women of Jerusalem will become part of this permanent repertoire, uh, a cycle, if you will. And I also should add, speaking of cycles, it's the first opera in a very grand plan and vision that LA Opera has called The Song of Los Angeles. And that is that we are commissioning and producing a cycle of community operas, that is operas in which large numbers of community members perform with professionals and for the larger community that will lead up to a whole cycle of five operas being performed all across Los Angeles for the 2028 Olympics. So the way cycles and the way grand schemes and opera work, you can't just premiere five operas at once. You have to premiere them one at a time and build up to having a whole group, a family of these operas. I hope it goes into circulation, as Stacey was saying, uh, for a long time and that it becomes almost, I'm not going to say a model, you know, like Britain's is, but kind of, uh, this is something that's very new. Um, and I hope that that it influences other works to bring biblical stories into the present and told in, in different ways. There are actually those some instruments that you would have found in Jerusalem at that time. Again, they're percussion instruments. So that's about as far as I went with instruments outside of traditional orchestration. And a big old church organ. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I can't wait. That's been a fantasy of mine for a long time to write something for a big, huge pipe organ. <laughs> You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.